Welcome to America This Week. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Walter Kern. Walter, I am I have rarely been as angry as I am this this morning at this in this moment, actually. Um as a as a person in the media, as a sort of somebody who's done this horrible job for, for three decades. I, I just can't even express to you how mad I am um, about this a series of events uh that begins with a massive book length Columbia Journalism Review uh, investigation that was published earlier this week on Monday and culminates today, uh, it's Friday, um, with Mother Jones and David Korn, a writer at Mother Jones, who, um, who was one of the first writers to fall for the Steele dossier story, denouncing the Columbia Journalism's Reviews excoriation of Russiagate coverage as a big fail, and mm-hmm. it's basically the reporter who got it wrong attacking the reporter who spent years getting it right as a fraud. Uh, not not a fraud. That's strong. That's putting it strongly. Um, but but as being wrong and, and calling him out in public. I, I just don't even know where to go with that. I you know I, I used to know David, but. Um, I just find this incredible. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are if you've seen well, that piece. We're, we're talking about David Korn. Uh, we're talking about someone who got quite famous or more famous uh, because of his Russiagate coverage and his accreditation of the Steele dossier, the since-debunked Steele dossier. Uh, what exactly is Korn saying the Columbia Journalism Review and its uh, writer Jeff Girth got wrong in their forensic examination of the uh, bunkum that turned out to be Russiagate? So this is, I think, this is the nut graph of, of Korn's piece, um, which is called, hang on a second, uh, Columbia Journalism Columbia Journalism Review's big fail. It published 24,000 words on Russiagate and missed the point. And then there he goes for a while and he mentions his own story that was described without criticism. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's there's a paragraph and it reads as follows. This is the beginning of it. Girth does not acknowledge how Trump and his campaign assisted Moscow's attack. He writes that, quote, Clinton and her campaign would secretly sponsor and promote an unsubstantiated conspiracy theory that there was a secret alliance between Trump and Russia, end quote, suggesting the media assisted this underhanded plot. And here's the key line. But in a sense, there was a secret alliance. And he goes on to argue that because Trump's people met with this the motley crew of Russian lawyers at the Trump Tower once and had a rendezvous, rendezvous um, from which nothing sprang uh, that we know of, um, uh, that this was a wink and nod uh, uh, agreement. This was uh, an agreement in, quote, wink and nod fashion. And then he writes, uh, Girth accurately notes that as far as we know, the meeting yielded no solid opposition research on Clinton for the Trump campaign to use. Uh, he thus describes the meeting as a flop, but he misses the point. With this confab, Team Trump signaled to Moscow that it was willing to accept Putin's covert assistance. Uh, this may have not, not have been collusion. It was complicity. 
I see. So they're they're backing off on the uh, they're backing off on the uh, c words here. Um, we're now at complicity because of a meeting that this Russian lawyer asked for, um, which Trump Jr. I believe agreed to, and which came to nothing. Um, meanwhile, over in the other sides uh, ranks. Uh, many Russians were meeting with someone named Steele at some point, or at least one, um, and forming the basis of a opposition research um, slam on Trump that came apart later. So uh, I would say there was at least complicity on that side with Russians who, you know, may or may not have been linked to Putin, but we don't know if this lawyer who met Trump Jr. was linked to Putin either, correct? We don't. And I, I, I've had, there's a couple of things here. First, I've had the misfortune uh, of being pitched by the same group of people, um, mm -hmm. a story. So this lawyer's name was Natalia Veselnitskaya. She worked for a company called Prevazon. This is very complicated. But many years ago, there was a congressional act passed called the Magnitsky Act which punished Russia for the basically the imprisonment and then subsequent death of a lawyer named Sergei uh, Magnitsky, who worked for the banker Mikhail Tartakovsky. Um, because of that, those sanctions, Russia then, in return, uh, I, get, I, I believe the, the sequence is they, they outlawed adoptions to the United States. Mm -hmm. So Prevazon... Um, they were a company that were, they were in America basically technically to serve as defense counsel for this, in this American court case that involves some Russians that, and some money that, um, it, that was tied to Magnitsky. It, again, it's very complicated. What, right. what they were also doing was lobbying for the repeal of the Magnitsky Act. And the way they would do this is they would go, they would call up people, members of Congress and reporters. And they would say, you know what? It's such a shame that people, that Russian kids can't be adopted in America. Wouldn't it be great if that pipeline could be reopened again and everybody could be happy and kids could find great homes in America? All you have to do is lift these sanctions um, and repeal the Magnitsky Act, right? So there's something slimy about it. Absolutely, right? Um, I got pitched that once as a reporter. And was so was so repulsed by it that I hung the phone. You're up. saying you took a meeting with the Russians? <laughs> Technically, I guess uh, I I, I, didn't, I don't even remember how the sequence happened. It was it was actually after Russia gets started because I was I was nosing around into Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson's company. The, you know the the one that was pushing all the steel dossier stuff and everything. Fusion GPS had been hired by Prevazon, by these Russians, okay? They were a client. So somehow, I forget how it happened. I, when, when I was sniffing into um, Fusion GPS, I collided with one of these Pre Prevazon people long before any of this became public. Right. And, and, um, and they pitched me on this thing, and it was so gross that I kind of recoiled from it. And I, if you read about the Trump meeting in the Trump Tower, that's kind of what it feels like happened there. Like they thought they were offered dirt on Hillary. 
they get into the meeting, it turns into an adoption pitch, and right. they kind of split. Uh, that's my read on it. I don't know. There's nothing to suggest anything else. Uh, so, 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 a, 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 as a somewhat uh, detached arbiter of this whole thing, what I see happening is David Korn having been busted along with half the mainstream press in the United States in a incredibly detailed, exhaustive, and extremely sober-minded Columbia Journalism Review piece, has retreated to the position, or maybe not even retreated, he seems rather aggressive in his doubling retreat. Doubling down. Yeah, is, is doubling down on the Russian conspiracy, well, not a conspiracy collusion, well, not a collusion complicity, in a sense, um, and using this um, vaporous, um, vague, and kind of completely fact-free, uh, except for this this Russian meeting being spun into something it wasn't, uh, ha- has used this material to exonerate himself and to um, damn the Colombian Journalism Review for its quote, big fail. Um, and, uh, then I noticed that on Twitter, you got into it a little bit with, uh, Mr. Korn. Um, what happened there? I was so mad about this when I saw it. And there's a little bit of history there. Cause I, I again, I knew David, he had once introduced me, uh, done a, at a reading for one of my books, he'd introduced me at a Washington bookstore. Right. So I met him there. After this story happened, um, the first the, the, the story backed up a little bit, and he he kind of had this public thing where he said even Donald Trump deserves objectivity or something like that. I actually quoted him in a story because I was calling him about something that had gone wrong. And then later we were on a radio show together. It was an NPR mm-hmm. show um, narrated by Warren Olney, and we got into it on the air. And I was basically just saying, like, look, we can't we can't get stuff wrong on this story. Like, it doesn't work. And right. and he said on the air that that, that, that was when it, like something was something along the lines of when Trump is is are when the stakes are Trump, that's looking at the wrong end of the uh, through the wrong end of the telescope, uh, worrying right. about this or that fact is looking through the wrong end of the telescope. I have to find the, the full quote. But that part I remember definitely. And then we had a little unfriendly back and forth. So, so look, people get in journalism, you get stuff wrong, you get beat every now and then a source lies to you. you there's nothing you can do. It's going to happen to you, right? Right. You have to just own it. There's no other way forward. Um, doesn't own it. He doubles down for years and years and years, which makes this thing move forward and forward. Um, and then the Columbia Journalism Review does this thing. And then again, again, rather than own it, he dumps on the reporter, the Pulitzer Prize winning decades long New York Times reporter, Jeff Gerth, uh, who worked on this story for years. Right. I don't even know how many phone calls. So I, I just tweeted to him, dude, you got to find a new line of work. And he immediately tweets back to me. Uh, you know, something. What was it? Very grown up. Uh it ended. Right. It ended with typical. You yeah, know. typical. Right. Yeah. Exactly. 
And, uh, and then I couldn't find my tweet online, which was bizarre. And then the next thing that happened is that I tweeted another thing. I, I was making fun of that line um, in, in a, a sense. sense. And, uh, and then Elon retweeted that. And I don't know, that's that's where we are at this moment, I guess. Well, I I, um, I didn't see your tweet either. We, as of a few minutes ago, at least, it seemed that it had been suppressed. It was not on your timeline. Your 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 request that he find another line of work. Um, I think his line of work is clearly that of columnist rather than reporter. Um, he seems to have a lot of opinions and very strong ones, uh, very weakly supported by facts. Um, you know, uh, and 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 I'll also note he didn't really address the piece in any substantial way. Uh, uh, the piece is, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of words. Twenty six thousand. Yep. Twenty six thousand. It was reported over years. It's incredibly detailed. Um, frankly, uh, I, I, you know, I had to read it with a pen and paper in hand to keep its uh, its revelations and its um, you know declarations straight. And it's as it's far from a fail. Uh, to call it a fail is, I think, his most misleading um, assertion because it's in fact the kind of piece that I've hoped for for years, because as someone who um, saw in part very early how feeble this story was, if not outright misleading, which I also think it was, this is total vindication. The press hasn't been very good at policing itself. It doesn't seem to be reacting to this story with anything like the level of attention or self-examination that you would think would result. Uh, I, I'm shocked by the silence around this piece, frankly. I mean, if, if a book-length exploration in the Columbia Journalism Review by a New York Times reporter, a decorated New York Times reporter who's as mainstream as they come, um, doesn't warrant 30 seconds on CNN. I don't know. Where do we go from there? You know, I, I, you, you looked through the CGR piece and you found what you thought was a, uh, a key moment for people who haven't read it. And it's, again, it's a huge thing. So that, that that's understandable, but you found a, a moment that I think sums up um, a lot of what the piece is about. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for and I'll get to that in a second. At, at the risk of mischaracterizing the entire narrative, it seems to me to be the story of um, a piece of paper floating around called the Steele dossier, a piece of paper with words printed on it, which even people who sort of used it later said were unverified and perhaps unverifiable that piece of paper becoming the basis for a kind of hurricane of, of coverage, commentary, um, uh, anger, uh, and uh, political scandal, that all of which 
come down to almost nothing, almost nothing at all. And so the question that the piece begs, because it's a, it's a very, as I say, a very sort of um, sober ground level look at this, is how the hell did this happen? Emotionally, institutionally, politically, how did this shitstorm develop out of this, you know, bad memo? And, and and I think that the moment in which the whole thing goes critical, you know, the 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 nuclear fission moment, is in uh, 2017 when BuzzFeed decides to publish the Steele dossier on the basis of it having been used in a briefing uh, by James Comey with with Donald Trump. Before, just before he took office. Uh, and the basis for Comey's decision to brief Trump on it was that the press might report on it. <laughs> that, that, and, and so so Comey's like, this piece of worthless information, and it wasn't a piece of information that he had verified at that point. No. Or well, ever would. Right. The they, they had begun doing this this thing called the Watts procedures by then, which is like trying to verify. That's a long story. Right. Anyway, go ahead. So he, so he took this collection of rumors and he said, because the press is going, looks like it's imminently going to report on them. I'm going to go brief Trump on them. He briefs Trump on them. And then the press finds out that he did and uses that briefing as the basis for news stories about the dossier, not because it was true, not because it had gotten any more credence than it had before, but simply because the press was reporting on Comey because the and Comey was briefing because of the press, and the whole thing spun up into a kind of you know pulling yourself up by a boot your boot own bootstraps uh perpetual motion uh principle and turned into the uh you know the butter. The, the the butterflies hurricane the, the 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 fabled hurricane that 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 is engendered by a tiny beating of a butterfly's wings and you know then suddenly you have the dossier out there you know and you know by this sort of uh, strange stratagem which may have been on purpose or may have been just some Kafkaesque turn of events, you know, and 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 then, you know, once this whole thing goes out of control, though that's to minimize uh, the the responsibility of of reporters and newspapers to keep things in control, especially when they involve the president of the United States and our nuclear adversary Russia and right. so on. Um, but 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 in any case, there there's a moment within that moment when. Uh, ben Smith, the editor of BuzzFeed, decides to publish this thing. And what he says to Girth about his decision was that publishing the Steele dossier was, quote, a journalistic no-brainer. And he's absolutely right. It was a no-brainer. No one used any brains when they decided to publish something that wasn't true <laughs> and that they hadn't checked and that they actually couldn't check because it was thought to be not only un you know unverified but unverifiable mm -hmm. and so from from this 
uh, confessed no-brain moment at BuzzFeed came two freaking years or more. Mm-hmm. Actually, let's just say it comes right up to the present because here's David Korn still defending the damn thing, you know, using his honor to uh, go back at the Columbia Journalism Review. So it's going up right until the moment. Uh, and uh, it all goes back to that no brain moment at BuzzFeed. Um, and I, I'm just amazed when I read it, because in some ways as a novelist, it, it, it's a perfect um, example of, of the ways something small builds into something large. But it also is a perfect example of how people seeking prestige, people seeking attention, people seeking power and circulation for their, you know, online BuzzFeed and and people at the time seeking Pulitzer Prizes and, you know, uh, other prizes. And getting them. uh, all, All profited from a lie. A lie that became too good to check, as they used to say. I forget, was it Christopher Hitchens who said, (laughs) you know, this was a story that was too good to check? And not only was it too good to check, as the Pulitzers piled up, as the George Polk Awards and other, you know, uh, august uh, uh, honors piled up, who could back away from this thing? It developed a kind of tidal uh, inertia that really started to float the reputa- the very reputations of a, a whole, you know, bunch of journalists and a bunch of newspapers, and it was all built on air. But who could stop at that point? It's it's pretty amazing when you think about the physics of it, right? It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, the physicist Leo Ziller imagining that how a nuclear chain reaction happens as he crosses the street in London. Remember that? There, there's the... Richard Rhodes's book, uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, how he mm-hmm. opens with this guy crossing the street, I think it was, and suddenly imagining how you could like basically uh, start an endless uh, explosion with one tiny act, physical act at the atomic level. Um, you know, one one atom hits, you know, something and then it goes into two and then it goes into four and then it goes into eight. Right. And he conceives of this. And that's what happened with the steel dossier. With very little initial investment of energy, they created this small kernel of horseshit and spun it into a Hiroshima of lies that continues to radiate out, literally radiate out, I guess, right, today. Um, And, you know... I always looked at this because one of the reasons that I was suspicious of this is because I, I think we've talked about this before. I had done a lot of um, these Wall Street stories about frauds where, you know, if you're short, if you're a short seller, you create a phony research report, you give it to a reporter, uh, you give it to a government agency. Then you tell the reporter that the agency has it. Headline appears the next morning, government investigating company X, right? right. Stock goes down. That's an old school scam. And this is the same thing. It's just you're, you're not reporting on the thing. You're reporting on the journey of the thing, right? right. So right. it goes from, you know, the FBI to, 
you know, it goes from one place to the FBI, one place to John McCain, then from John McCain, you know, maybe to Congress, and then it ends up uh, with all of these officials who then give it to Trump, who then leak that news to the reporters, and then you're reporting not on the thing, but on the fact that the meeting took place, the fact that Trump was briefed, that somebody took possession of the thing, but you're never actually examining the thing. I mean, the metaphor here for me is it's it's both the butterflies thing, wings thing, and like ironically the Russian nesting doll, right? Because the Matryoshka doll that you have to right. o- keep opening the different layers inside until you look at you look at the middle and there's nothing in there. You know, like we had a responsibility to look, keep looking and they didn't do it. They just kept passing the doll. You know, I don't know. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and, and here they, you know, we're in the land of about four intersecting metaphors. But um, to return to the nuclear metaphor, they 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 thought they were blowing Trump up and they seem to still think it in some way, but they blew themselves up. And here they are cascading through the atmosphere in pieces because that's what this that's what this article does. That's what this uh, essay in the CGR does. It, it it really leaves them with no recourse but David Cornish, in a sense, type statements because it 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 ends it ends up making the FBI look perspicacious by comparison too. I mean, over and over, you have people who, you know, are are no friend to Trump, obviously, like Peter Stroke, the the counterintelligence agent in FBI, kind of warning the papers, hey, this is all bullshit. I mean, I I never expected reading this that it would make some of the most contentious uh, and somewhat unattractive figures from the FBI involved in this thing look like you know elder statesmen but they do um and uh i've seen some conservative journalists criticize the piece as a kind of whitewash of the fbi's role in 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 fomenting this thing but just looking at the piece inside the frame it would seem that a lot of the fbi people though they might not have you know, they might not have liked Trump and they might have been outwardly and inwardly prejudiced against him, or at least trying to contain this thing for a while. In the same way in the Twitter files, we see people within Twitter trying to, you know, alert the press to the fact that it's, you know, uh, off on some bullshit tangent or trying to alert the government to the fact that Russian influence is not what it seems. And, and, and what's, interesting about the piece is that when it finally comes down to what was the actual Russian influence in the 2016 election, it can only find $2,900 worth of, um, worth of Facebook, uh, buys on the part of a group, the IRA that may or may not have anything to do with the Russian government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, 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 so that turns out to be the real basis for anything that, you know, could be construed as Russian complicity, co- collusion, or whatever David Korn wants to call it. Um, 
And how that is a fail in journalism to to go through this giant multi-year press extravaganza and social extravaganza, because, you know, even though you and I are in the press, and even though this piece discusses just journalistic malfeasance, what we both know is that the, the resonance of these stories changed our culture, changed our relationship to politics, um, uh, turned turned people against people, families you know, against brother families. against sister, if you want to be biblical about it, mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 has probably resulted in our inability to cover a near war with Russia very well. Um, in other words, it has developed existential stakes, and and and, and it's it's not just a game, man. Uh, and I applaud Girth for realizing it's not just a game and devoting his own time and energy and reputation to getting to the bottom of this in the way that, you know, a, a good judge would or a good reporter would. Yeah. And, and, and for folks who don't know, Jeff's an older gentleman. He's in his 70s. He's retired, essentially. Mm-hmm but very decorated. He's, he covered everything in the eighties and nineties. Like you've probably read his byline if you were around at that time. Um, and I think without talking with him about this specifically, my guess is the instinct. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about what the motivation was, but my read on it is he's in retirement. He sees everything that he spent his whole life working on kind of falling apart. And it's a kind of a, clarion call to uh, restore credibility, you know, try to show people how it's done. It's very interesting at the start of the piece. If you read it, you'll see. If you're hearing this message, you're listening to the free version of America This Week. To hear the rest of our conversation, please subscribe at taibi.substack.com.